0: You're listening to The Lit Review, a podcast where organizers interview organizers about books. In this moment of urgency, mass political education is key. We recognize that political study is not always accessible for a variety of reasons. Our goal with The Lit Review is to be a resource that brings out key information from relevant books to the masses. Think Sparknotes in podcast form. I'm one of your hosts, Paige May, and thank you for listening to The Lit Review. today's episode, we'll be talking with Rama Kademi, a Syrian-American activist and organizer currently living in D.C. Rama serves on the board of the Washington Peace Center. She's a member of the Syrian Solidarity Collective and the Muslim Women's Policy Forum. She also serves with the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights, working as a BDS organizer. And BDS stands for Boycott, Divest, and Sanctions. We chatted with Rama via a video call about the book Burning Country, Syrians in Revolution and War by Leila al and Robin yassin Kassab.
1: My name is Rama Kudemi. I'm a Syrian-American activist based in D.C. I do work um, on a lot of different issues, um, including Muslim-American, you know, fighting against anti-Islamophobia here locally in D.C., I'm part of a Muslim American Women's Policy Forum, which is like a local Muslim woman organizing um, collective. I'm also part of the Syrian Solidarity Collective, which is a group of Syrians in the United States who are working to mobilize um, and educate around the popular uprising in Syria um, for freedom and dignity. Mm -hmm. And I do. I also do Palestine work, um, and I kind of do the work I do because I kind. I grew up with a lot of these issues, so I grew up um, as a Muslim Arab Syrian woman. And so all of these identities shape who I am, and I'm so I'm always pulled to kind of contribute where I can um, to f- in the struggles that are impacting myself, my family, and my communities.
0: Awesome. Um, so um, today we're going to be talking about Burning Country, um, and it's a book that you were talking about recently at a talk that uh, Bettina and I were at. Um, it was an event. It was one of um, Muslims Organized, which is their informal name right now in Chicago. But it's um, they had this event where they sort of talked about um, what's happening in Syria right now. So that's when you recommended um, this book and talked a little bit about it. And so that sort of piqued our interest in in hearing about more about this book, uh, especially in this moment. Um, and so um, I guess, do you do you know anything about the authors, any background on them? What's the... Um, the authors
1: are both uh, Syrians, um, Robin Yassin Qasab and Leila Ashami. Um, they're, I think, based in Europe, I believe both of them, um, and, you know, just Assyrian activists, and they got together, they wanted to write this book, um, because I think a lot of times the narrative on Syria is one missing Syrian voices. And to you know, it's been now almost six years um, since the start of the revolution. And this book came out on the five-year anniversary. But it's very important to have a very, um, you know, well-written um, and concise um, book that really was an introduction, really, to the uprising, um, the revolution, and, you know, the ensuing war that has been happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and hearing um, from, you know, the, the different, the vast... Uh, You know the vast different things that are happening in the country. A lot of times, people either focus on the war aspect, or they focus focus on the grassroots aspect, and very few kind of bring it all together in one way that people can be like, like, okay, I I'm getting a good decent insight into what's been happening in Syria. I'm hearing from Syrian activists themselves.
0: What what would be like a very just uh basic either a basic synopsis of this book or or um what is one important thing that you would want people to to sort of bring out of this book
2: especially um with the target audience of organizers Mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. uh the u.s north america
1: one of the best things about this book is it come it came out and um and this is still relevant now the news that we get out of syria from mainstream media is very much focused on war and violence Mm. And kind of what various governments and regimes are doing in Syria, who they're backing, who they're not backing, who's sending weapons to whom, um, what threats there are on a global level. And very little do we hear about the Syrian people themselves, other than they are victims um, or they are refugees. So what we're hearing now with the indefinite ban on Syrian refugees. Um, people are just, like, feeling sorry, like, oh, this is awful. Mm-hmm. But no one is really taking that extra step of being like, okay, well, why are these Syrian mm-hmm. refugees refugees? What are they escaping from? What what agency do they have as human beings? Mm-hmm. And that is, I think, the most important part of this book, is that it brings us back to, again, what the uprising was all about, What how this all started back in 2011, March 2011, mm-hmm. when some... Syrian youth in the village of Dar'a were inspired by what they saw happening across the region in Tunisia, in Libya, in Bahrain, in Egypt, in Yemen. They saw people rising up and demanding the fall of the regime, and they were thus inspired to do the same. Mm. And so they went out, they drew some graffiti on the walls, um, asking for freedom. And what happened after was a crackdown. Um, repression, and that slowly got more and more people out in the streets, um, and the revolution spread across the country, and again was met by more repression by the government and the and regime forces, and unfortunately has now spiraled into an all-out war, um, and yet there are still people in the streets organizing um, and protesting when they can. Whenever there is a pause in any sort of bombing, um, you know, People go out in the street again, and they continue to make the same demand, the fall of the regime, making very clear that the problem is the regime, and we're going to continue to fight in the regime. And while there are other problems that we are also now facing, uh, whether extremist groups or other kind of countries coming in and bombing, um, such as the United States, we still want to make sure that our original demand is very clear, that Mm -hmm. it, it all starts with an oppressive regime. I think that's very important for organizers in terms of like knowing what your big demand is, when your ultimate goal is, and continuing to fight for that in the face of all kinds of horror and repression.
2: Cool. So, something that's like really provocative about the title of the book, even, is uh, the title of it, right? Burning Country. And I think a lot of people right now. Because we are still—it's like what eight days since the inauguration, um, mm-hmm. eight or nine days since the inauguration—is when we're recording, and people feel like, oh my gosh, like there's so much stuff happening, it's so overwhelming. Um, and I really like the point that you just made of like, like things will be thrown at us, and there's going to be a lot of distractions, but we need to like keep on with what our main target is and what our main grand demand is, and so. I'm just like very curious if they talk about the emotional and psychological toll mm-hmm. um, that's taken on the the activists that they out you know that they describe mm-hmm. in the book or mm-hmm. you know themselves as authors of the book um, mm-hmm. and as activists themselves.
1: Yeah, I think one thing that I that a lot I like so there's a chapter about um, the culture culture revolutionized, mm-hmm. and that's kind of um, goes at in terms of how. Actually, in the beginning days of the revolution, how people were reinvigorated, um, and we saw all this beautiful cultural expressions coming out. So, um, the beautiful chants and singing that would take place um, at the Um, protests—you know—you saw the artistic talent and creativity come out. And this creativity that, for so long, um, had had been shut down because this is a regime. You know, Bashar al-Assad, the current president, um, came to power in. 2003 after his um, father passed away, mm. sorry, in 2000 after his pa- father passed away, so power just passed on from the father to the son, but his father had been in power since uh, 1969. So this is a family um, and a regime who had been in power in decade, and it was an extremely brutal regime where people were, com- were scared to even um, talk about politics in very close family circles. That's how people, how scared people were. Mm. Um, and I, like, you know, I'm sure... Pretty much almost most families knew people who had been tortured by the regime, even for simple things of not just asking for reforms, not even like anything more drastic, just simple reforms. And so there was there's been this, this clampdown, and that meant there was a vacuum in sort of, po, you know, creative organizing, politics. There was not that space. Your organizing was only allowed within the very um, scope, limited scope of within the ruling party, the Ba'ath party. Mm-hmm. and that meant that you know there was just no other space and so there was a lot people didn't have that trust um within one another and, and relationship building all the stuff that we sometimes take for granted in our organizing circles here, because we talk a lot about like you need to build relationships mm-hmm. from the ground up and that mm-hmm. was not there mm-hmm. and so i think the beauty of what um, what happened in March 2011 and this months that followed was this barrier of fear was broken. And so that's why you saw all this cultural reproduction that was taking place. And that shows, again, the, the power that just a little bit of f- f- um, freedom people felt, they were able to produce so much. So there's one city called Kafaranbal, village of Kafaranbal, which is in the north part of the country, where every week they would um, make these beautiful banners and then spread them all around all social media, like, the, you know, the banner saying, we want freedom, we want dignity, um, we support other struggles, why are, you know, wh- where's the solidarity for us, and then being very clear about who is responsible for the deaths and the destruction, so being, blaming the regime, blaming those who back the regime, the governments of Russia and Iran, then when the United States was getting involved in ways that, in, that further um, Uh, Further impacted the revolution in not good ways. um, Also calling out the United States, Um, you had publications being made, like um, so, like a publication that was called *Enabelladi*, which is the grapes of my countries. These kind of country, these publications were flourishing as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Women were taking, you know, um, a big, big role as well, going out in the protests, um, being media spokespeople, Mm -hmm. and so that I think is what. gives you hope in that in when there is space for people to just a little bit breathe, that all this creativity comes
0: out. Yeah, and so the artist in me actually wants to ask, does the book mention any sort of artist collectives or um, specific artists that played a, a significant role in like this banner making? Or was it just like all hands on deck sort of thing?
1: So a lot of it was um, like hands on deck. So like, for example, um, there'd be local coordinating committees um, that would pop up in in cities, and these people, w- these coordinating committees, will do um, everything from okay, let's do you know who in who in this city has some sort of skills in media, in communications, and art. Okay, let's train other people. Let's train them in social media. Let's train mm. them being media spokespeople, um, how to document protests and repression. Um, And then slowly as, as like things became, as there was more war, they then also were involved in like, okay, helping people survive. So finding Mm -hmm. food, um, you know, getting together to um, break sieges, um, you know, demand the breaking of sieges when cities were put in sea, under siege. And then you would have, um, you know, like rappers. Um, Mm -hmm. So some, I think one, they uh, mentioned a couple of rappers. So one um, was a, there's a group called Refugees of Rap, which is a Palestinian-Syrian um, refugee group. Um, so there's so many Palestinian refugees in Syria um, who were um, forced out of their homes um, from Palestine when Israel was established in 1948 and ended up in refugee camps in uh, Syria, who are now actually being displaced once again because mm-hmm. of um, the war. Um, you have Omar um, Afandam, who is a well-known Syrian-American um, artist, but has been doing um you know has been doing songs about the syrian revolution um and supporting you know when he can artists on the ground so Mm -hmm. that's the kind of um beautiful again um grassroots creativity that's happening that we don't necessarily hear in the media Mm
0: -hmm. so you mentioned social media what was what was the role of social media in um in the revolution and also um how I mean, was there ever, like, internet blackouts? Like, I know that there's a lot of instances where, like, the internet is just shut off, Twitter is blocked, things like that. Did, Did any of that happen? And, like, if so, what were some of the alternatives? You know, that's I guess that's what I'm thinking about right now is, like, I mean, we're seeing sort of, like, the executive orders that Trump is making, and we see him shutting down, like, the National Park Service, and we see him, you know, doing all these things, but then, you know, there are, like, the radical revolutionary, like, rogue accounts that then pop up, right? Or, But I guess I'm just, you know, worried about a total Twitter shutdown or something like mm-hmm. that. So, yeah, is there yeah. – yeah, do you have any thoughts on – yeah. On yeah, that?
1: I think it's interesting because social media has been at times hyped up a lot in terms of um, the various Arab uprisings. So, like, for example, when um, the Egyptian revolution was happening against Mubarak – a lot of people called it the Facebook revolution Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. as if the Egyptian people, you know, until Facebook came along and helped them out, (laughs) there was no way the Egyptian people were able to figure it out. (laughs) And so I think there's there's definitely an amplifying role um, social media has played in across the region in these um, uprisings, but also, you know, to get a lot of people out in the streets, you need a little bit more than media. Mm -hmm. You know, you need those people to um, feel comfortable with one another um, to you know, to start small in terms of building those relationships, and like I said, I think perhaps in Syria, um, social media may have. probably What I think the benefit of social media is. So, for example, at the beginning stages of the revolution, every Friday would be labeled a certain thing. So, be Friday of dignity.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, then the week and after be Friday of a national strike,
2: mm.
1: um, and that those things would kind of spread on social media to get people um, to just know about it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And part of that, I think what, what encourages people then is saying, okay, I'm not the only one thinking like that. Mm-hmm. Cause again, when I'm talking about like a severe totalitarian police state, you might be afraid like, Oh my God, if I'm the only one that's going to show up at a protest or I really can't trust, um, you know, my neighbor as much as I would like to, mm-hmm. What you see is like, oh, wait, there's like hundreds of people RSVPing. Okay, maybe mm-hmm. maybe there is going to be something out of this. Mm-hmm. Um, so that kind of encouragement um, to people um, to like, okay, there's enough people going out. And you go out the first time and you see, okay, we have a good crowd, maybe the next time. And if you look at like early videos of the revolution where like squares and cities were filled. So mm-hmm. like thousands of people taking to the streets, doing sit-ins, um, doing strikes. And that slowly and slowly encourages people. And I think the importance of social media now, because a lot of times these these protests, you know, pictures were taken and uploaded on Facebook and Twitter, videos were uploaded on YouTube, and it's it's a memory that um, regimes and governments cannot erase. Because they always, they want to try to um, rewrite the story mm-hmm. and engage in revisionism. So mm-hmm. what the story that we're told now about Syria is, there really was never a grassroots uprising. It was from the start dominated by quote-unquote terrorists Mm. and you know, these jihadi groups. Again, a very Islamophobic language um, that we're seeing, you know, what's been accepted as just dehumanizing Muslims by using this language. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet, they can't erase everything that's Mm -hmm. online. They Mm -hmm. cannot erase the YouTube videos that are uploaded. They Mm -hmm. cannot uh, erase the photos on Instagram and Twitter. Mm -hmm. And so we have that history, and it's something to hang on to.
0: So I know there is power in in using social media for mobilization, right? But then, like you were saying, it's another thing then to organize, right? You have to, like, be amongst people. You have to, like, do relationship building. Um, So another thing that um, social media is so... Um, critical in self-representation and and preserving our histories and our own narratives. Um, Is there ever any talk around sort of like the the repression that social media can lead to or sort of like how activists and, and, you know, revolutionaries can get targeted through that social media? And is that something that happened in the Syrian revolution?
1: Yeah, it definitely happens. And um, I know for the first few years, a lot of activists tweeted under pseudonyms Mm -hmm. um they were still you know would tweet under pseudonyms and then at some point some activists said you know what um we owe it to people to come out um and identify who we are because we want to also like again that barrier of fear like we want to say you know what we're we're gonna get through that barrier of fear and even though we're risking our lives um it's still important that we do it Mm -hmm. and um like there's a lot. So, like, what was happening, for example, back in December in Aleppo, um, when there was a lot of fear that the um, when the regime, the Syrian regime, and Russia were bombing um, Aleppo, the stories of activists taking to you know and you know live live tweeting, um, live videoing the attacks, and really calling on. The world to come save them like we're about to die. I think you know had an impact somewhat um, in in getting people like outpouring of people to support uh, to support them and again push the the push the reality of what was happening because mm-hmm. a lot of times you, if you're depending again on mainstream media or regime sources or government sources you're not getting the entire truth they all you know everyone has an interest but when you're right there seeing you know, there's no middle person. You're seeing the video straight from the an impacted person who's like living under a bomb and wanting to be saved. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, again, that power of we can hear directly from impacted people. And even though it's risky for them, I think more and more Syrian activists are saying, you know what, we can't, we're already under complete risk. You know, we are we are being bombed. Like, what more risk can there be? Mm. Um, It is unfortunate, I think, that a lot of the Syrian grassroots activists who were very active um, early on have either been killed, um, have been imprisoned, um, have been kidnapped by, um, by various fighting forces, and or have felt the need to just flee the country and are now living in exile. And so a lot of what's happening in Syria now and the fact that there isn't much, um, as much grassroots um, organizing as was, you know, in the beginning is one because it's hard to f- do grassroots organizing when you have daily bombings. Um, that's part of it. But two, a lot of again, the more um, seasoned organizers and activists just had to flee because they felt or were have been killed, and because they were targeted. Mm. And so you have people who are still doing amazing things, but they're really learning. Um, under really extreme circumstances, yeah. what
0: was sort of like the support, like or solidarity or lack thereof, um, and yeah. and what what could have been done differently, and how how can that look now?
1: Yeah, the book does um, have. I think one of the last chapters talks about um, solidarity, and and it's the chapter is the start of solidarity.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think, unfortunately, um, what the book. Um, Talks about and what I think happened is there's been a great lack of solidarity um, with the Syrian revolution, especially amongst you know what we would describe as the left, um, Mm -hmm. you know, um, whatever that means. But you know, I think (laughs) you know in general we understand you know leftist politics as people who are concerned with rights and liberation um, and and you know struggles for justice. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of excitement. across the globe when people rose up in Tunisia. There was a lot of excitement when people rose up against in, in Egypt, in Yemen, in Bahrain. And then in Libya and Syria, we saw that there was not that enthusiasm, and unfortunately, um, people actually fighting against the revolution. Again, people who, would, who I would describe, who would claim that they are left. And it's this problematic narrative of you know every th- the black and white of you are either an imperialist or you are an anti-imperialist and we're talking about specifically u.s imperialism and so the bashar al-assad um the syrian regime claims to be anti-imperialist and so you might l- listen to his rhetoric and say yeah sure he's anti-imperialist but the reality is if you look at his actions um they're not anti-imperialist mm-hmm. so for example the regime um, worked with the United States um, in their CIA rendition program, and this, um, the United States would send um, people to get tortured in CIA prisons in, in Syria in CIA black sites, and like in mm-hmm. Syria, like the Syrian um, regime fo- forces um, would torture people on behalf of the United mm-hmm. States. Um, Bashar Assad neoliberalized the Syrian economy, and in terms of what we're talking, like. There's, complete opposite of being anti-imperialist when you're opening up your country for the benefit of global capitalism and you're making it so that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer and then the biggest talking point is people talk about the syrian regime being the protector of the palestinian people and they're going to liberate um you know palestine when in reality um for example like syria actually has land occupied by israel since 1967 the golan heights has been been occupied and Syrians when the when Bashar regime would s- started sending tanks to that village in Daraa where the revolution started the joke was the Golan is that way why aren't you sending your tanks there to liberate our land mm. versus sending your tanks to kill your people
2: mm.
1: and the regime has a history of being repress- repressive against Syri- of Palestinians um, and the Palestinian cause and within this context of this war um, they've laid siege on Palestinian refugee camps, killed and tortured Palestinian refugees. Um, so it's very, it's very odd for people to continue to believe this is a regime in support of Palestinian liberation when they kill the most vulnerable um, of Palestinians, the refugee population.
2: Mm-hmm. Wow.
1: So it is unfortunate. Um, but I think we, one, we see, I, I always look at how oppressed people kind of show solidarity with each other. Um, So, for example, there's been beautiful displays of solidarity between Palestinians in Palestine and Syrians in Syria. Mm -hmm. And so, like, um, there was one beautiful... um, in Last April, um, Russian um, and regime um, airplanes bombed a hospital in Aleppo called Al-Quds Hospital, so Jerusalem Hospital. And so refugees in Gaza, who themselves have been on in block on, you know, under blockade for 10 years, have been denied their right of return to their homes within historic Palestine for almost 70 years. Um, you know, we're holding signs like Gaza and Syria hand in hand. We're being strangled. You're being bombed. We're, You know, we're in this together. And so that's the beauty that I look at. And I think under Trump, because Trump is so intent on, one, expanding the war on terror and collaborating more closely with, um, Putin. And Trump has signaled that he he believes that Bashar al-Assad is truly a, a potential partner to fight against um, terrorism. And so there's hope, I think, for, especially in the U.S., anti-war movement, to revive to do be actually in solidarity with the Syrian people, to actually fight against the U, the real U.S. war on Syria, not the fake U.S. war that they claim is happening, but the real one that involves bombing. Um, and then, and how we can be in solidarity with the call um, for the fall of regime is is something we need to really think about.
2: That kind of makes me think of so. There's like a lot of disinformation that's happening, right, with Syria. A lot of like, if you are not Reading a book like Burning Country, you may, or just like totally clueless on like the history of Syria, you can be very easily uh, deceived. And so I kind of wonder, so a call for regime change, like that's even a step a little bit too much for some people that may not know exactly what's happening in Syria. So how do you like carve out a demand that puts people at the center, which is what I feel like I hear that you're saying, you know? Yeah. yeah so i wonder how yeah. people think about that
1: yeah i think part of it is, is again especially with syria is to is to disrupt this narrative of regime change it's not mm-hmm. a regime change when the people the people have a right to resist their government and the people have a right to rise up against oppressive an oppressive regime and so we have to first recognize that that this was an authentic legitimate uprising by the Syrian people Mm-hmm. once we say once we're talking about regime chains, it connotates that this is foreigners mm-hmm. coming in um, and forcing a change in the government at the you know against the people and that's that is what you know happened um you know with the, with the invasion of iraq in 2003 mm-hmm. um you know that is what happened it wasn't the people who rose up and we were supporting them we just went in and decided, hey, you know what, we don't like your government, we're going to change it. And uh, The U.S. has done this, obviously, across the world. It's not new um, mm-hmm. and not surprising. But again, I think when we're talking about Syria, it's not it, that's not the case. Um, people have a right to rise up, and we, as people who are also struggling for justice, we can control, obviously, what we do with our government, and we say the United States should not meddle in the affairs of other Um, countries. I think that's a legitimate, um, you know, and legitimate concern and something we should continue to do. And, you know, the U.S. should not be providing military aid to all the countries it provides military aid to, all the regimes it backs, etc. But there has to be a way for people to people solidarity. Mm -hmm. And in Syria, I think the it starts, it's hard now because I can tell you, there isn't a very clear political project moving forward in Syria. I think there is one clear demand we can, we should all be making is, all bombing of Syria needs to stop. And so that means the United States needs to stop bombing, Russia needs to stop bombing, the regime needs to stop bombing. There are, the coalition that the United States put together um, to fight ISIS in Syria is 16 countries. So there's 16 countries that are just, whenever they feel like it, will drop a bomb on Syria.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: that's one demand, is that there needs to be a complete end of all of all the bombs, because that's the only way there will be space for people to, okay, Maybe we can rethink now what how we can build and continue pushing forward a political project. But in the absence of that political project, there's many things people can do. We can educate people. So we know that these misinformation campaigns are happening. How can we, when we hear someone talk about regime change, we say, hey, I don't think that's happening. Do you know that in March 2011, um, people were taking to the streets and demanding the fall of regime. And then it was the government repression that pushed some people to go, to push the militarization um, of some groups, um, you know, so disrupt that narrative. Um, if you are an artist, talk about the beautiful artwork that's been coming out of the regime, highlight the artists, um, the singers, the rappers, um, and what they're doing, the writers, the documentarians show these documentaries. If you're a teacher, can you imagine, like teaching under bombs or teaching in refugee camps now? You know, since so many Syrians are in refugee camps across the region. So, how can you bring that story as to your fellow educators? If you're in the medical field, hospitals um, and medical staff have been um, specifically targeted in this war. So, how can you show some sort of solidarity that makes a difference? It seems people always are like, "No, no, I really, I want, to, I want to real, do something real." Like that's <laughs> not real, and I'm just like, well. The first part of any struggle is to shift the discourse. We know that. We cannot do anything without having at least um, the, the right, you know, as close of the right discourse as we can. And so that makes an impact. Um, and hopefully then, by the time that there is more of a clear path in Syria, we will be more prepared to be like, OK, this is how we can step in and support you. And but hopefully then we can if we just get to a better discourse around Syria, we will then be able to be more prepared when there is um, you know, some more, when this grassroots movement hopefully gets rejuvenated.
0: This has been really incredible. Thank you so much for just taking the time to talk to us. Like I just, I'm just really thankful. Um, what makes this book important to read right now in this moment? Um, I mean, besides everything you just said, which has convinced me, um, what, what, yeah, what else makes this book important to read right now?
1: I think there's going to be, like I said, an increase in the war on terror, which means, um, and specifically, so Trump signed an executive order over the weekend that was given the Pentagon, um, 30 days to come up with plans to defeat ISIS. Um, and then he was talking specifically about Iraq and Syria. So we're going to see Syria potentially more in the news. Um, so it's an opportunity to educate ourselves about, okay, this is what I'm hearing in the news. This is what I'm hearing in other you know, alternative media, what's really going on. So that's an opportunity. I think my biggest also um, desire is that, so we're seeing a rejuvenation of all these movements in the United States. Um, and, you know, we're seeing immigrant rights folks and Black Lives Matter activists and, you know, Muslim activists and this anti-Islamophobia work, um, indigenous rights, all of these struggles um, are are coming together and figure out, okay, how can we work together? How can we, um, you know, fight along each other? How can we show solidarity with each other without erasing each other's struggles but recognizing that, um, you know, we can build off one another and we need like a more united front against what Trump is planning. Absolutely. And I think part of it is I want to make sure that this angle also has kind of an internationalist angle to it. And so in some causes it's very, it's easier than others. So with Palestine, I think we've, we've seen how Palestine um, has become part um, of a lot of local struggles and people are recognizing the connections between, okay, you know, one, the very obvious the connections of the United States is the one who sends military aid to Israel, and those are the weapon—you know—it's U.S. weapons that are killing Palestinians. But then, more like, how are we looking at the the, the similar systems of racism that are impacting both mm-hmm. um, the police brutality, how police exchanges—you know, police in the U.S. are going and getting trained in mm-hmm. Israel and then coming back and using all these yeah. tactics that they practiced on Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, how you know, indigenous rights—you know, Palestine is this. So we have an issue of settler colonialism and fighting against that here in the United States. Mm-hmm. We're fighting against the settler colonialism as well. And so I want to make sure that we can, that it can expand it beyond just Palestine and think, you know, obviously in the region, um, but all over the globe of like, how do we bring an internationalist aspect to all of the work we're doing? because in the end of the day we are in the United States, which is the most powerful country in the world, uh, which does have bases all across the globe, mm-hmm. which has wrought destruction all across the globe. And so obviously people are impacted by that. And a lot of times what happens is we talk about victims of U.S. wars and policies abroad, but we don't recognize, again, their agency. We just see them as victims and we don't think, wait, you know, they're actually people and they're struggling against different things Let's, is there a way we can amplify their demands? Is there a way we can connect our struggles mm-hmm. And for me, I think bringing Syria into the conversation is very important because I, it will be part, it, it's gonna become part of the conversation. Like I said, this refugee ban, a lot of talk is happening about refugees, but in a very depoliticized context where we're just talking about Syrian refugees, but we're not talking about who's responsible for making them refugees. What will be the conditions necessary for them to feel safe to return home? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what is, again, that Islamophobic aspect um, that is impacting all, obviously, a lot of Muslims, but even specifically Syrians in a, in, a, in a very
0: unique way. And do you have a favorite quote from the book?
1: A favorite quote from the book? Yeah. Let me see. <laughs> and, um, um, we hope this book has shown that there are Syrians inside and in exile who are more than worthy of support. We ask the reader to engage with them, with media and creative workers, with the committees and councils, by working with refugees and in the camps. Learning opportunities will arise naturally from such human engagement. In order to truly think globally, rather rather than to hide from thought behind clumsy globalizing paradigms, it is necessary to act locally. We ask the reader, rather than applying the usual grand narratives, to attend to voices from the ground. Thank you so much. Thank you. No, thank you so
0: much, Monica. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Lit Review. Please check out our website for links to resources on where to donate to Syrian-led organizations right now, as well as additional books and essays to read on Syria. I'm one of your hosts, Monica Trinidad. Tune in next week at thelitreview.org. Keep reading.